Hello everyone, my name is Naibar Ghouti and this is the magic of ornamentation. What are ornaments? Ornaments are the milk to your cookies, the butter to your jam, the spices to your rice, well, not if you're Dutch, and the zeit to your zatar, if you're an Arab and know what that means. Ornaments are not only delicious additions, but vital ingredients to make the perfect dish. Okay, maybe enough with the food metaphors, I'm kind of getting hungry. In simple words, ornaments can have a significant effect on the way music is performed. It can transform a melody from a certain genre and switch it entirely into another, using only one different ornamental approach or technique. As Robert Donington wrote in his book, Baroque Music Style and Performance, Ornamentation is more than decoration. It is a necessity. There has to be enough of it and of the right kinds. Although it was written about Baroque performance, it is also highly appropriate for Arabic music performance. Donington adds that sometimes playing without ornamentation is equal to playing the wrong note. Lamia Al-Faruqi, in her paper on the performance of Taqsim, or improvisation, in Arabic music, goes further and states that ornamentation in Arabic music is the raw material and not the decoration but the content of the piece. So as you heard in the beginning, Beethoven can easily become Bet Eastern. Actually, that excerpt you heard in the beginning comes from a short fiction film by Sinan Setin about a group of Turkish musicians in a village in Anatolia in 1934 who were forced to play Western classical music instead of folk music in order to sound more Western and less Eastern. To save their own lives as the soldiers pointed weapons at them, demanding them to play Western classical music, they played Mozart and Beethoven. It sounded so beautiful that the soldiers could not help but dance. One of them even commented, If this is Western music, then why do I like it so much? So, by adding a few ornaments to such a Western classical melody, the style was drastically transformed. Just like when the witch turned Ariel into a human. Okay, maybe that was a bit too much. So when looking back in history, we can hear a strong connection between different music genres that come from different backgrounds. For example, the historical relationship between Arabic music and jazz. I find that connection a bit underrated and underexplored. I won't get too much into that right now, but I'd like to give it a quick summary for context. Ever since I was a little girl, my parents would always play all kinds of music in our house in Palestine. I was really in love with Arabic classical music as I grew up listening to it and learning it. I also found myself falling in love with jazz. It spoke to me, and it somehow sounded similar to Arabic music despite it being anything but. I could always hear some sort of connection between jazz and Arabic music, but I didn't think it was possible. I thought it might just be the general musical elements that exist in both genres, like the spontaneity of the performers, the creative licks, the improvisations, playing with rhythms, etc. 
but later on, I decided to study jazz and went all the way to the US to do so. I took a class in jazz history, and there it was. The actual historical connection between what we know as jazz and Arabic music. It all goes back to when Muslims escaped Spain in the 1400s and traveled to different parts of Africa, and as a result, integrated with African slaves. The call for prayer, the maqams or scales in Arabic music, and the ornaments or style of singing had a significant effect on the songs that the slaves recited in the fields as they worked. These are known as field haulers or field cries, as they resembled the sound of crying to express the slaves' agony. It was those field cries that later traveled to North America along with the slaves and developed blues, which then resulted in the creation of jazz. Oh, Lord, I woke up this morning, man, I was feeling bad. This is a field hauler from the Alan Lomax recordings. Let's listen again and pay attention to how the end of the phrase is ornamented, as this is a technique used a lot by Muslims when reciting Quran. Oh, Lord, I woke up this morning, man, I feeling bad. Now, listen to this. You hear the similarities? Unbelievable, right? This historical context was very important for me to know in order to truly appreciate the roots of jazz and to learn how to really listen to it. I believe that this can also be applicable to the Western ear. We can also hear some similarities between Arabic music ornamentation and ornamentation used in Baroque music. As much as I'm tempted to listen to the rest of this, my heart must go on. Actually, this also has some interesting ornaments. But anyway, where were we? Ah, history. Speaking of, there are bands like the Rolling Stones who also tried to incorporate some Arabic ornamentation and tuning in their music. Listen to this. is an art, and the same way we look at paintings and study the different colors, shades, techniques, and styles used by painters throughout different historical periods, we can also look and examine ornamentation in that same way in Arabic music. 
from one country to the other, from one generation to the other, ornamentation changed. One could argue that it somehow shrank. Well, not like that. It's quite fascinating to see the amount of diversity that exists within Arabic music. In my experience with the Western culture, having lived abroad for nearly six years, most people I meet are not aware of this diversity. Most people do not know that all this magic exists under the category of Arabic music. For some reason, I notice that there is a crucial need to categorize when it comes to music genres in the West, but everything else in the world tends to fall under the term non-Western, or worse, world music. Gosh, I remember the first time I heard this term, world music. I was 17 years old in my first year of the Jazz Bachelor's program at Jacob School of Music in the United States. I was so confused and unaware of what that even meant. What is world music? Is it like the rest of the world? But are we all the same? How come? Mr. Krabs, I am so confused. Me too, SpongeBob. So then I moved to Amsterdam to continue my degree at the Amsterdam Conservatory of Music and started learning more about the underground music scene. It was so overwhelming for me to hear all these different categories and subcategories and sub-subcategories and sub-sub-sub-subcategories of techno music. To me, it all kind of fell under the same general vibe or family, but my friends thought that was insane as there were so many differences. I, of course, learned how to appreciate that, but still could not believe how these tiny differences within one genre get all these fancy names and subgenres, and the rest of the human civilization falls under the term world music. Or do I mean... So, let me ask you this. What do you think of when you hear the words Arabic music? Is it this? The image of a massive desert with orange sand, rich bearded men with jewelry, women, lots of women, camels, horses, and of course, a snake, a cobra snake coming out of a basket with the sound of hijaz, the most used maqam or scale in Arabic music. Or is it perhaps something more rhythmic? For some reason, you can always find these weird Arabic music cliches under Arabian belly dance music or Arabian desert music or Arabian something else. What is Arabian anyway? I mean, I thought the noun in itself refers to the Arabian horse, which is basically a horse that comes from the Arabian Peninsula. Oh well, I like horses. I know that to some of you, this might sound crazy and inaccurate, and I thank you for that. But trust me when I say that I have encountered people who really do think about these things when the words Arabic music come to mind. I really blame the commercial film and music industry for that, for using repetitive, biased, and stereotypical images about Arabs and Arabic culture as an education tool for their audience. With time, they succeed to convey Arabic culture as primitive, barbaric, unevolved, uneducated, and uncivilized. This is shown through the producer's choice of clothing, the choice of characteristics, and of course, the setting and the music that are then connected to Arab characters. 
This might seem off topic, but to me, it's very connected. It connects to how we are taught to listen, to think, to appreciate, and to understand diversity. In a way, these hidden messages serve as an unintentional fear of anything that is non-Western, aka the rest of the world. It makes one almost scared to try to face something like Arabic music, for instance, because facing it would mean that the mind can no longer dehumanize it. All of a sudden, it's there. It's complex, it's sophisticated, developed, and it's definitely an art. I started paying more and more attention to this when many of my friends, both musicians and non-musicians, would show interest in Arabic music when I would show them something or sing or play for them. But it's as if they would be surprised that this is really included, as to speak, in Arabic music. Like going to an open buffet and finding out that desserts and drinks are included in the package and you had no idea. This made me feel an urge to introduce more and more people to the wide science of Arabic music. With its over 70 maqams or scales, over 100 rhythmic motifs ranging from 2 to 48 beats, its wide range of musical content, structures, and formats, it really is an endless science. As overwhelming as that seems, it's also pleasing to know that the element of surprise never ceases to end in Arabic music. There will always be something new to learn or to discover. There will always be new findings about the different historical connections that resulted in so many musical civilizations. The influence of Persian music on Arabic and Indian music and vice versa. The effect of that on Turkish music, Balkan, Armenian, etc. It's really magical to see how much beauty there is. Ah, speaking of magic, let's go back to ornaments. The reason why I took that little detour is simply to show you the wide diversity within Arabic music. So wide that it feels like another world. Let me show you. Don't worry if you're like totally annoyed by this. I know many Arab musicians who can't listen to it either. I'm just a little bit weird, so no worries. This is a recording from 1920 by Munira al Mahdiya, who is known to be the first Egyptian singer to perform on stage and record albums. She was known as the female Sultan of Tarab, a genre in Arabic music. Tarab is usually defined as a lightness and agitation of the spirit following joy, sorrow, or contentment. For some reason, this recording and others like it were my teenage jam. Can you believe that? I was always the kid that took the longest showers and was listening to music like this for hours until my parents would go insane and beg me to be a normal kid who listens to pop. Just kidding, my parents would never really listen to pop, but they couldn't listen to this either. As you can probably hear, there are many ornaments. Listen to this. Crazy, right? Notice that the ornaments are quite fast, bald, insanely difficult and require unbelievable technique. Also, notice that the instrumentation is very different than what we're used to now, 
which is often why the modern ear, especially the western one, finds it difficult to understand music from that time, as back then Arabic music did not really care much about instrumentation, arrangement, harmony and perfect intonation. It was more of a random accompaniment approach, or at least that's how it might seem to most people. But when really going in depth and analyzing it, we can see a pattern in the chaos, like an organized chaos. When you think about it, it's quite impossible to do. I mean, imagine bringing an orchestra and asking them to accompany a random improvisation by a singer without really taking away from his or her diva-ness, but actually adding depth to it. No music charts, no planning ahead, no rehearsing, just playing and somehow finding your way there. Hmm. Okay, maybe let's not imagine that. Because of this huge focus on the singer, that even the tiniest arrangement is not available, we can hear that the voice is so full. Ornaments are full and are used as a way to add depth to the melody, to an extent that it becomes difficult to really know what the actual melody is without ornaments. But as mentioned earlier, the quote from Al-Faruqi, Ornamentation in Arabic music is the raw material and not the decoration but the content of the piece. So maybe another way to feel less overwhelmed is not to try to look for the melody by erasing the ornaments, but rather listen from afar to take the melody along with the ornaments as one piece. Just like when you're in a museum looking at a painting, of course you want to get close enough to see all the details, but you won't actually see the painting until you take a couple of steps backwards and see the whole thing. Afterwards, you try different angles on the right and left to really make sure you got to see all the tricks and shades and all that. Same way you can't taste a layer's cake without getting one bite with all the layers, because then you're not tasting a layer's cake, you're tasting a layer. Like, one layer. Okay, that probably made no sense. I just had to go back to the food, didn't I? Maybe I should make another podcast about food. What do you think? No? Back to the ornaments? Yeah, okay. So again, that was a recording from Egypt in 1920. Let's skip a bit and go to the 1940s. Listen to this. Beautiful, it feels illegal to pause. This was Um Kulthum, the legend of the Arabic music Tarab genre from Egypt, who kind of stole the fame from Munira al Mahdiya, the first singer I played for you. Ooh, history gossip. Um Kulthum sold over 80 million records worldwide. She kind of was the boss. 
As you can hear, there's already a lot more instrumentation and melodies. This melody in particular is historical. It's called Anaf Intazarak. The way the instrumental part begins and how it then delivers it to the vocalist then grows slowly in a suspenseful way with her until the climax hits and explodes along with the audience's ecstasy. That, my friends, is the definition of Tarab. Now, let's skip even more and go to the late 60s. guitar and that bass? Did you hear the fingers of western music knocking at the door? As you can hear, this includes much more instrumentation, and the effect is less ornaments, a bit slower, a bit less intense and out there, and a bit more lyrical and melodic. The focus is now more on the song as a whole and not just the singer's abilities, although she has outstanding abilities. This is Uncle Fum again singing Fakkaruni. So this so far has all been in Egypt as it's considered the mother of the Arabic Tarab genre. But what was happening in Lebanon at that same time? over 150 million records worldwide. She is simply incredible. Notice the massive difference? Orchestration, harmony, beautiful arrangement, angelic voice, as we call it in Arabic, as-sahl al-mumtana, which means complex simplicity. It sounds so smooth and easy, but if you try to sing it, well, good luck. 
At this point, the Western music fingers are no longer knocking at the door. They're inside the house, sitting in the living room and drinking delicious Arabic tea with homemade cookies. Even within the Fairuz repertoire, there are different planets. She goes from this... ...to this... ...to this... Fairuz was a Christian, and she grew up singing the most beautiful and spiritual Eastern Christian hymns in church. This last one was my absolute favorite. I wish there was enough time to show you all her other different styles, but I would need about 10 more days to cover half of those. However, I will show you the modern Fairuz singing songs by her genius son, Ziad Rahbani. <laughs> Notice how massive the difference is between Egypt and Lebanon and within just the repertoire of one singer. Of course, the orchestration has a significant effect, but the vocal technique is everything. The timbre of the voice is different as it goes from full chest voice to mixed with head voice. The breathing technique is different. You can say it's more organized, more academic and planned. The intonation is more Western influenced. And of course, the biggest and most interesting element, at least for me, is the ornaments. Notice how much smoother, slower, less showy and extremely expressive they've become. In some instances, there are almost no apparent ornaments in the melody. say that the more western influenced the less ornaments it feels like she just throws the notes along with the lyrics without really giving it a lot of thought it resembles many jazz singers how they make it sharp and edgy so for me that sounds a bit more jazzy than for example Of course, the ornaments do not have to be Arabic ornaments. I can also make jazz ornaments, for example. They're not massive, but they make a difference. So again, ornaments are so important and powerful that they can make you travel like a time machine. Now check this out.
call this the Jabali style of singing, which literally means mountain. Why? I'm not 100% sure, but I'm guessing it's because it originated from the mountains of the Levant. Notice how rough, fast, and strong the ornaments are. This is done by thickening the voice in a way that really complements the strength of the Jabali style. This technique was mastered by Wadir al-Safi, who simply took it to the next level. <laughs> I would love to go over every country in the Arab region and introduce you to the beauty and the magic they created, but unfortunately there isn't enough time to talk about all of them, so I've created this short mix-up playlist of the traditional music of different Arab countries so that you can get an idea. Palestine Algeria Comoros Egypt Iraq Lebanon Libya Somalia Sudan Gulf region Yemen I also must show you this.
wedding, this song was more famous than her, like the actual bride. My sister is an incredible Western classical violin player who plays with the Dallas Symphony. People at her wedding were 95% musicians, like Western classical musicians. And this is the song they kept putting on repeat. This is Arabic pop music. And of course it's popular for a reason but it also lacks so many elements to be considered strong musically. Notice how the ornaments are very auto-tuned to sound sharp and bright, less expressive, less technically demanding, less vocal diva-like, and less attention-seeking. The ornaments here turn from being pure content to pure decoration. This requires less listening, less analyzing, and less thinking, as it just kind of passes by without leaving a statement. I find that this is the reason why so many people are attracted to it. Let's listen to some more pop, shall we? There are also pop singers who sometimes sing songs from the genres mentioned before, like the Egyptian tarab genre or the Jabali mountain genre we talked about. When listening to it, it never feels quite right. I try to analyze the reason behind that, and the main thing is again, ornaments. Their voices have become so used to pop ornaments that when trying to sing non-pop music, they can't get rid of that pop ornamental effect. I guess it would be the same as if you would listen to, for example, an American pop singer singing a piece in a jazz setting, but by still keeping her or his pop ornaments slash timbre. I can't remember what was said or what you threw at me. Please tell me. Please tell me. Why. This is actually originally a pop tune in which the singer is trying to turn into a jazz tune. The arrangement works, and of course makes it sound jazzier than what it used to be. But in my modest opinion, the vocals do not succeed in doing so. The use of this style of ornaments really takes away from the jazz sound. It immediately gives me a pop sound. For example, if I would sing the jazz standard, Misty, with let's say a pop sound it would go something like look at me if i would want to go for a more jazz sound i would do something else look at me let's now listen to this original phrase from wadia asafi the master of the jabali mountain genre now, 
let's listen to a pop singer who also sang the song. But before we do that, please try to listen to the differences between the ornaments used. Don't worry if you can't really hear the difference yet. It takes time to become so familiar with this music in order to detect the differences. I remember when I first started learning jazz, it was so hard to tell when something was considered really good or just average. It was so foreign to me that it took a couple of years before I started really hearing these things and understanding what ingredients are needed to make good jazz. That is good. So yes, ornaments really are magical and they can truly change how we listen, enjoy, appreciate and understand music. In Arabic music, they are the fingerprints that determine the identity and DNA of the music. They can tell so much more than we think and that we are used to focus on. In this podcast, I focused mostly on vocal ornaments. Instrumental ornaments are a science on their own that we don't have enough time to get into now. However, I will play this for you. happen if the voice imitates these ornaments. We're always used to listening to vocalists singing lyrics and adding ornaments to those, but it remains very lyrical and vocal. In jazz, we have scat singing, which is basically vocalists imitating instrumentalists. In Indian music, there is the art of konakol, which is performing percussion syllables vocally in South Indian Carnatic music. Ta, di, tum, nam. We also hear Indian vocalists using the names of pitches as lyrics to improvise. We also hear people like Bobby McFerrin, who uses his body to produce different instrumental sounds, from percussion to wind instruments. Inspired by all these things, two years ago, I decided to develop an Arabic vocal technique that can allow singers to sing extremely difficult instrumental ornaments. Of course, this wasn't just brought up as a challenge and as an effective way to develop technique, but also because I find it extremely beautiful and liberating to be an instrumental vocalist. This is a different feeling from when I'm playing the flute, for example, which by the way was my first instrument that I started playing from the age of seven. Playing on my vocal cords as if they were an external musical instrument is really empowering. The voice is such a hidden and built-in instrument that most of us never really get to control it like we would like to. But if we do find a way to do so, it can change everything we know about technique. 
This decision of mine wasn't really a decision, but more of something that I started to do unconsciously. It all started out when I shared a video of myself improvising with this technique almost two years ago on my Facebook page, and was shocked to see people's reactions. Within a couple of weeks, it reached over a million views, and my followers started arguing about whether this sounded like a clarinet, or a violin, or something else. None of them were arguing that it sounded like a voice. One of my followers even coined the term Nystrumentation. Nai is my name, and it also means flute in Arabic. I know, coincidence. I got to tell everyone that my name is Nai, and I play the Nai. Although the Nai really has nothing to do with the Western flute that I play, it's the Arabic flute. But let's just keep that as a secret, can we? Anyway, that's when I realized that I should pay attention to this technique and become conscious about it in order to develop it and take it further. It is currently my master's thesis topic that I'm completing at the Amsterdam Conservatory of Music. This was my first video to do this. I did a bunch of them later, and many instrumentalists started transcribing these nice instrumentation improvisations. I was used to vocalists imitating instruments, so it was really nice to hear instrumentalists transcribing a vocal improvisation. Here's an example of a oud player who transcribed one of my solos. <laughs> As you can probably hear, it sounds quite natural on Daoud to play this. Actually much more natural than the voice, because these ornaments are much more instrumental than vocal. What makes them instrumental is their speed, the detailed intonation used, their edginess, in the sense that each note is heard clearly rather than just flowing, and also the syllables used. I try to pick syllables that sound natural to me, but also not very vocal-like. For example, if I would want to sing that same phrase in a more vocal way, I would do... Instead of... As you can see, the ornaments here are more precise, they're faster, they're edgier, and they're sharper. 
This is what makes them more instrumental than vocal. Later I realized that it could also be nice to use this technique when singing an actual melody, whether instrumental or originally a vocal melody with lyrics. I can replace the lyrics with these syllables that I use. This is a melody I wrote. It's actually a mix of intonation, timbre, ornamentation and syllables that really make the difference. I still don't know much about the biology behind this technique, and that's why I'd like to research it, but I'm sure that on the inside there's a lot going on as I can feel my vocal cords partying. Imagine the same passage you just heard sung without these ornaments. It would sound like this. Now let's replace it with an oboe, for example. Sounds pretty Western classical, right? Well, I'm obsessed with Bach, and this was influenced a lot by him. Now let's listen to this technique used in a live setting. This is an instrumental Ottoman folk piece that was so much fun to sing. This technique made it possible to sing very fast and rhythmically complex music. Now this is how the same technique would sound when mixed with jazz. This technique has allowed me to fully understand and appreciate the magic of ornamentation in Arabic music and how much it can add to other styles of music. Most importantly, it has taught me that the voice can do so much more than what we're used to do with it. It can go planets further than that. This technique has been my practical understanding of the connection between Arabic music and jazz. Beyond history, theories and harmonies, this was my way of connecting these two worlds vocally. It has given me a bigger sense of the melodic and rhythmic richness that exists in Arabic music. The power of intonation, especially when mixed with the right kind of ornamentation. And finally, the massive diversity in Arabic music that I hope I was able to show you a bit of today. This brings me to the end. Thank you very much for listening. I hope that you've enjoyed this as much as I have enjoyed working on it. 
A big thank you to Jonas Biskert and the Gaudemus Music Festival for giving me this wonderful opportunity. To hear some more of my music, please follow me on my YouTube channel, Instagram and Facebook official accounts under the name Naibar Bye-bye.